0: So we're going to go to chapter 9. Paul, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from the Messiah for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen quite an exhortation to begin with with great passion and tears in his eyes crying out saying just as Moses said I'm willing to lose my own salvation if my kinsmen could be saved he's talking about Israel that they would come to a knowledge, and it's very similar, if you'll remember, last week we discussed Hebrews chapter 6, didn't we? Where we said, to those who once tasted, who once were enlightened, who once... That's why I think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, because this channels right to it so closely, and he's saying very much the same thing. The Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the patriarchs, the promises. That same kind of listing that the writer of Hebrews said, that if you walk away back... From once knowing those things. To them belong the race, and he says this according to the flesh, that's physically, they were descendants of Abraham, is the Messiah, and here's a proof text for the divinity of Jesus Christ. He says this is the Christ, wherever you see Christ, I will refer to as Messiah, all right, so that you understand the argument, is the Messiah who is God. Who is Messiah, who is God overall. All right, amen. And so you know what he's turning his topic to now is Israel, an impassioned plea to Israel because Israel has to do this very, very difficult thing and we so often forget the struggle of the New Testament We always read the New Testament in a modern context of of being a believer now. But you have to understand that while this was being written, while it was being spoken, it was under the difficulty of the entire nation of Israel who once knew salvation by faith in the sacrificial system, in the dietary laws, and in the priesthood, and in the covenants. Now everything is switching to be said. That was all a foreshadow of Messiah, you must receive Jesus, and none of that has impact anymore. And they're just, they're just wrecked by that. And so they have to come to a knowledge of faith through Messiah. And they need to be taught that. And so, let's go on. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be be named this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of god but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring just because you're born jewish doesn't mean you're saved though you're a son of abraham by flesh but what paul is saying is uh, uh, all who are called israel are not god's israel god's people Because they have to, by faith, come into relationship with God. But it had come to a place where simply by being born a Jew, they believe they're saved and in the covenant because they're circumcised. And that does not determine salvation. It's always been by faith. And we see this in Hebrews as well. Paul writes about all those who were delivered out of Egypt, but all died in the wilderness because they didn't put faith to the word of God. They didn't trust God. And so what he now begins to do is say, let me take you back to the very beginning of, the, of Abraham. And he said, there was a child of promise and there was a child brought by the flesh. How many of you remember that? Who was the child of promise? Isaac. And that's supposed to say Isaac. But I'll get to that in a minute. Isaac and Ishmael, right? And so Isaac is the child of promise. They had to wait from God for that child. Uh, But they went ahead of their own works and produced Ishmael. Now, did Ishmael receive the blessings of God and the promises of Abraham to Ishmael? No, because he was a child of works. But Isaac was the child of promise. And that's what he's saying. Just because you're an offspring, get the argument? Just because you're an offspring of Abraham Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So he now goes on to say Jacob and Esau, these two were born at the same time. But one, Esau was born first, then came Jacob, but yet God said the younger The older shall serve the younger, which is out of the line, that's out of order to birth order. But he said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, important point, he's quoting from a a latter prophet when he said that about the nations. But why did he love Jacob and hate Esau? Because Jacob came to God by faith. Jacob came unto a relationship with Yahweh by faith, Esau did not. Esau did not come to the Lord; he was, but he was a child of Isaac. Are you getting the difference here? In, in what Paul's argument is, you can be born physically of the flesh, and I'm telling you, with Isaac, uh, uh, he was, and Ishmael. Isaac was born of the promise, not a work of flesh. With Jacob and Esau, God chose Jacob over Esau because Jacob came to God by faith. Esau did not, but both offspring. All right, so he goes on and he says this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? No, 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 by no means. He said to Moses, I'll have mercy on who I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now he brings up the issue of Moses and Pharaoh. Why is he bringing up this point about those who come to God in faith instead of flesh? Because he's trying to make the same argument to Israel that happened with Moses and Pharaoh. God chose Israel to be a people, as he made a promise to Abraham, who would bring salvation to planet earth. And he chose to show his grace to Israel, and this made Pharaoh furious. And as he said to Moses, I'll have favor on whom I want to have favor. And he's saying that to Israel because Israel's beginning to do the very thing Pharaoh did. Israel's hardening its heart against God's choosing to go to the Gentile nations. If God wants to save Gentiles, now look, at this is where this chapter gets into all sorts of trouble with Calvinism and Arminianism. The key here is the point everybody seems to continue to miss. They get so micro into this, they miss the macro of it, and the macro is this. It's an explanation that God's saying if he wants to save the nations, he can And he uses these examples. They don't have to be born of Abraham's flesh. If I want to choose someone outside of born, and by the way, being born of his flesh doesn't mean much. It has to always be faith. It was from faith first to last. And he said, Jacob and Esau, Moses and Pharaoh. It's by faith. Now, does he harden men's hearts? Does he make some to destruction and so forth? There's an old saying in the church. The same son... That melts the wax, hardens the clay. God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't choose one over another, but He may choose to show love on one. And as He exposes His love, it's the condition of the heart. God decided to chose love to, to, to show love and His grace to Israel. And in showing love to Israel, it melted their hearts to receive him, but it hardens Pharaoh's for for this God to come against him. Which is an amazing, wonderful thing about God, (coughs) always using the term of hardening Pharaoh's heart, because if you understand Egyptian religion, when you die as an Egyptian, they believed you crossed over the River Styx, And that when you crossed over the river, there was the God there that had the crocodile head. And uh, he would weigh your heart. And if your heart was a stone, you could not go further on into an afterlife. So what would happen by God calling Pharaoh's heart hardened? Stony heart, man. That thing ain't going to do too good on the scales of justice of an afterlife. He uses their own terms of religion to show him, like, you're in trouble, dude. And so he calls his heart hardened. And we see this even in our own lives. There are times when God shows favor to someone else, and we go, How come then, and not me? God showing grace on someone, and our hearts gets a little hardened over it. And that's what's happening with Israel. That's the whole point of, of chapter 9, 10, and 11. That if God chooses to save Gentiles, don't harden your heart. That's what the writer of Hebrews said. Today, while you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, for today is the day of salvation. It's the same message to Israel again. They're getting a hardened heart because we're the children of Abraham. We've got all the goods. You can't just save anybody you want. And Paul's using that argument with their own genealogy that Isaac was a son of promise, Ishmael a son of the flesh. And just because you call yourself Israel and you're a son of Abraham doesn't mean you're following after God. Look at Jacob and Esau. God decided to show favor on Jacob And through time, the nation of Jacob, uh, God loved versus the, the nation of Esau. And the nation of Jacob, God showed favor to because they followed after God. And just as Moses and Pharaoh, God showed grace to Moses and his people and it hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now don't you, Israel, do the same thing? And he goes on to say that. He says... You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, you have made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honors for use and another of dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, his has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God is the maker, God is the one who shapes the clay. Can the clay talk back to the, to the maker and say, I don't like the way you made me? I want this. I want that. You you are in the hands of the Potter, and it is unto his discretion whom he will, and he can make vessels if he wants to out of a particular clay, uh, as clay as vessels of dishonor, uh, vessels that are not going to be of, of value, and he can use some to have value and be of greater measure. Does and if that's God's choosing, that's God's choosing. He can choose to do that. If God is going to exalt Israel above all other nations and use them to bring salvation, that's his choosing, isn't it? Could people who were not of Israel come and be saved? Yeah, they could come in but he's using Israel as a platform for salvation to bring Messiah through. Now, God is choosing to bring Messiah in and open to all nations this salvation which he had prepared beforehand. And if the vessel he had made to bring salvation no longer wants to move in the, in the, in the effort that God is using through Messiah, then he can destroy that one if he wants. God can do what he wants to do. Let's get with the program. And so what God is doing is using whom he wants, how he wants, and he's showing grace to all the nations now. And Israel needs to understand that. So then what's he do? He brings his two witnesses. Every time Paul argues, you remember everything's established by two or three witnesses. So he brings his two witnesses, and he quotes from Hosea and Isaiah. As indeed he said in Hosea, those who were not my people, I'm going to call my people. And her who is not beloved, I'm going to call Beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. If I want to call the nations my people, I'm calling them and I'm making a way for them. And who are you to tell me that I can't do that? And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So just because there was an Israel and always an Israel doesn't mean everybody that was an Israelite was saved. Israel, in the Old Testament, still had to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You had throughout all the generations, from Moses all the way to Malachi, Israelites who lived and existed. They didn't, not every single Israelite uh, is going to be in heaven. They still had to have faith in the sacrificial system and faith in Yahweh and live a life to obedience to the law. We've got a lot of people today who say that they're Christians, but you're not a Christian just because you go to a church and you say you're a Christian. You must be born again. You must be born again from the very Spirit of God to be saved and delivered. And that is only through faith. And so it is the same measure in the Old Testament and the same measure in the New Testament. As Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of salvation uh, uh, and it is by a righteousness from first to last, a faith to faith, always by faith. And so he goes on to say, Isaiah said, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it was based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. For as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's from Psalm, uh, the Hallel, and Psalm 118, and uh, it's also from Isaiah chapter 8. And so he is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And Isaiah calls him a stumbling stone. Do you know what the Greek word for stumbling is? Scandalon. He's a scandal. Jesus is a scandal. He trips everyone up. And he's tripping Israel because Israel thought that if they obeyed rules and performed works, that they attained the favor of God. But it has always been by faith. You can't do these things and ignore God. Look at Israel's history over and over and over again. A very religious people. But they kept falling for other gods. Oh, very religious, but always for other gods. Their heart wasn't in it. God called them how many times to circumcise their heart? And their heart was a heart of stone. You remember Isaiah 26. I am going to replace that heart of stone with a heart that beats for me. And Jesus is a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Why? Because through Jesus, salvation has come. And He has fulfilled the law. So that faith in what He did on that cross is salvation. And that's causing Israel to stumble. And Paul's Paul's giving them a warning. Don't fall. Don't stumble over Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. Understand who He is. Because He's a rock of offense. He's offending your pride, Israel. And your pride is getting the better of you. He goes on now in chapter 10 and he says this, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So what's, God, what's Paul's goal? Israel would be saved. His brethren would come to salvation. Now, uh, could I ask you this question? What uh, nationality was Paul? Jewish. Jewish, he was Jewish, right? Uh, how about the apostles? Jewish. As a matter of fact, how about the entire New Testament church uh, (laughs) was Jewish until they began to see This message, as they went out from Jerusalem, then they began to see that this message was to the nations, went to an Ethiopian eunuch, went to a a Roman soldier, Cornelius and his family, and it went out from there to Samaritans, and it went out just as God had prophesied from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of this world, this gospel is now reaching all people, and Israel's going, I don't like it. We're the people of God and you can see the pride and you can see the stumbling rock of offense in Jesus and you can see their heart getting harder because God is showing grace to the nations and that's exactly what Romans 9 and 10 and 11 is about. It's not a treatise on election and and, uh, Calvinism and predestination. Yeah, God predetermined this plan. God predetermined that he was going to call Abraham, give him promises that his children would be as many as the stars, many as the sand of the sea, work through his family to increase it into a nation, and with that nation download all the promises he could that was going to come as he predetermined a time when he would open that salvation to all nations so that he could gather in sons of God and conform them to the image of Messiah so that all those promises through Israel would now be manifest to them in the earth and they would bring forth the gospel to the return of Jesus Christ that's the predetermined plan but again we've macroized it to where it's just individual people I'm choosing you and you and not you and we've missed the argument chapter 10 I pray for them to be saved Why would Paul pray for them to be saved if they were not elect? What is God's will? That all, none should perish, but all come to repentance. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Yeah, they do. They have a zeal for God. Paul should know he was just like it. But not according to knowledge. They're ignorant for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. They had a righteousness that comes from self. He said this is a righteous they're ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the righteousness from God came from Jesus Messiah. It's the only way you and I can receive righteousness by faith in him, not by our own efforts and Christian This is what Paul says in Galatians. How can you who start by the Spirit think that you can finish it by your works? Christians, same thing. You got saved by grace, so don't think you maintain your salvation by your works. But it's by faith in Christ that we respond daily and act with Him. And our righteousness isn't because we've got better at obedience. Our righteousness is because it's the gift of God by our faith in Christ Jesus, which birthed in me a new nature by which I long to serve and please my King. And I abhor any aspect of sin that has a remnant in me. But thanks be to God, I have a Holy Spirit that intercedes for me day and night with groanings to birth the will of God. We studied that last week, didn't we? Uh, We go on now. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says this, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that's to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. He's quoting the Old Testament, saying that where is the word? The word is from your heart, it's within you. And so he's declaring, the Bible has always said, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. This is the true act of faith, and this is what Israel missed. They did everything by works, by the effort of their unction of the flesh to obey law, but they did not love him by faith in their heart. There were those who did, and those were the ones who were saved in the Old Testament. So it is by our heart that we establish a relationship with God. Now, we're talking in terms. Now, uh, being so sophisticated in the 21st century, you science majors, you understand that the heart simply pumps blood. So how do I ask Jesus into my heart? Am I going to put him in my heart with a catheter or some kind of a thing, squeeze him in there, and he pumps into the veins and all that? Where are we inviting Jesus into our circulatory system? No. No. For Israel, when they understood with the heart, they they meant the soul, the intellect, the emotion, the will, who they are as a person and being. All that I am must trust and believe in who Messiah is. If in my innermost being I believe that he died for my sins, that he was buried and rose again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, that is my faith unto salvation and believing that in my heart what did Jesus say out of the abundance of the heart the mouth will speak the mouth will confess and so you will bring to bear fruition out of your being that which you believe you profess and confess what you hold within your being and that is what salvation is made of now Does that mean I should never have to do any good works? No, no, no. We're we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But you can't do any good work until you are born again. Then you can do the works unto righteousness. But you do them not to earn salvation. You already have it. You do it because you are saved. Now, we're in a situation right now where many of the reform doctrine and the reform teachers and and these guys on YouTube, and those who are opposed to Charismatics and Pentecostals, there's a big move right now against the sinner's prayer. Um, And I understand it. I understand the point, because many people, one of the worst things we can do as Christians is to get someone to believe they're saved when they're not saved. That's one of the worst things you can do. Because they're going to be under the false understanding that they said a prayer and that they're going to go to heaven just because they said a prayer. As if a recitation, some reciting of something is going to get you saved. Reciting something doesn't get you saved. But believing in what you're confessing is what gets you saved. Now the difficulty is we don't know what's in a person's heart. And there are times when we use this and it was developed Uh, throughout evangelicalism and especially with guys like Charles Finney and so forth, they wanted to create a crisis of faith because so often in the churches in early America and through the world, people would come to church and think they were saved just by being at church. And so they would cause a crisis, they created a mourner's bench, so that when you felt the persecution of the Holy Spirit, they would call you out so that you would need to make a decision. Because so often, people come, they hear the Word of God, and they walk away. But isn't God sovereign? Isn't it the Holy Spirit that births them? Yes, it is. But many times, they need that opportunity and that open door, and by calling out, if you want to receive Jesus, this gives them the opportunity to say yes where they may be ignorant not to know. And then we have them say the sinner's prayer. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Confess you're a sinner and trust in Jesus Christ. And so this movement right now is to say that's so unbiblical, it's not in the Bible, get rid of it, you can't ask Jesus into your heart. Well, there's plenty of scriptures that talk about making Jesus Lord of your heart. Peter talks about it. And about getting your heart right with God. And that on the day when, when the Apostle Peter was speaking, they cried out, What must we do to be saved? Well, I'm not going to tell you. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. No, it's a direct question, and it's what we do with this. And we take Romans 10, 9, and 10, and we use it as an opportunity for you to figure out. But it doesn't mean you automatically get saved by saying this magical incantation because a lot of that has been abused. You know how many people have come forth in crusades because Billy Graham or anybody other evangelist calls them forth for salvation. They come down, they say a sinner's prayer, and about 80% of them two months later are never saved. They're gone. So then we go, well, they got saved, but I guess they lost their salvation. They never came to salvation, but they said the sinner's prayer. It doesn't matter what they say. It's got to start where? In the heart. This is the catalyst. It must start in the heart. Say it with me. Start in the heart. One more time. Start in the heart. See, we observe what comes out of the mouth, don't we? Well, they said it. Well, a lot of people say a lot of stuff that comes from their brain to their mouth. Not from the heart or their core of being to their mouth. There's a difference. How many of you know that? It's about 18 inches. Right? A lot of people say this. Now, I've been a lot of nations. I've been a lot of different places, and I've been a lot of places where there's crisis, and people are hungry, and people need things, and churches come with relief and give them things. And I've seen it over and over again where uh, we'll preach the gospel to you and then we'll give you your water or we'll give you your food. And people who are desperate, they'll say whatever you want. they say, well, would you like to receive Jesus? If you do, we'll give you food. No problem. What do I got to say? I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Give me uh, I, I believe in you, Jesus. Yeah, good. Can I have the food? Is that really a true salvation? No, but I can't judge each individual heart But there's a better way to do it. It's under the unction of the Holy Spirit that convicts the heart that, of course, no one can confess that Jesus is Lord unless the Spirit says it in them and births it in them. But again, how do we know and how do we determine? So we have to be careful. When we bring someone to salvation, we must disciple them. We must instruct them. If you brought a friend and they got saved, you're responsible to teach and instruct them and help disciple them into knowing that this is true. Now let's continue. Uh, I needed to make that public announcement because it's all over YouTube, and some of you may be confused and say, Oh, no, we have to, don't use the sinner's prayer. It's not in the Bible. We can't use it. I, I hope you understand the balance of this thing. So, it is with the heart that you confess and believe. Let's cover that again. For with the heart, one believes. Right? One believes and is justified. So first comes belief, then comes what? Justification. There's another argument I won't get into. But anyways, uh, so you have to believe first, then there's justification, and then the mouth confesses and you are saved. Okay? Confession is important. There are other people who say that they're saved, they believe in Jesus, but they've never confessed Him among men. Then there's a real question Are you saved? You have to understand something. To these believers, to make a confession of Jesus Christ was literally life or death. All right? I've been in China where, in China, to make a confession for Jesus Christ is putting your life at risk. But yet they will still, because of the impact on their heart, they will confess Jesus as Lord. Let me continue. Now, listen to this, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Hold on. Who do you think you're talking to, Paul? No distinction between pagans and Israel? Do you understand how harsh this language is to Israel? How offensive it is? That's the point. If God chooses to save pagans, He can. He's the master who molds it. And if He wants that once was a vessel of dishonor and make it a vessel of honor, he can if he wants to. There's no difference now. And later Paul will say there's no difference between Jew or Greek, male or female. Slave or free. That is so radical to the society that they're living in. Anyone can come to salvation. Hallelujah. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We only use that as a, a, a glib expression. Anybody who calls on Jesus can be saved. We don't understand the impact of that to this culture and this group of people who's saying the only salvation is to the Jews, to the Jews. And Paul is saying anyone who calls on the name of Messiah can be saved. Wait a minute. They're pagans. If they call on Jesus, they can be saved. They're women. If they call on Jesus, they can be saved. They're slaves. If they call on Jesus, they can be saved. Christ came and died for all. That's the miracle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as Paul said earlier, there's none righteous, no, not one. This grace is bestowed to everyone. But how are they to call on Him whom they have believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent Oh, as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of them who bring or preach the good news. This is the way that the gospel is propagated in that known world. How is it that between 100 A.D. and 300 A.D. they went from some hundred thousand to millions of converts and we in this 21st century can't see that kind of outbreak of the gospel. Because everybody was involved. And it was a message that liberated everyone from sin. And it went to all people groups. And so we've got to get back to every one of us being enlisted. Because how are they going to hear unless someone preaches to them? And who's going to go preach to them unless someone is sent? I hereby commission every one of you to be sent out and preach this good news. How beautiful on the feet are them who bring good news. Now that's a saying because back in the day, at this time, they used to have marathon runners. How many of you know that? And so that when an, when a people group went out to war and they wanted to know, did we win or did we lose, the people who were in the battle would send couriers uh, and messengers. uh, to go back to the city to say whether they won or they lost. And the people on the watchtower, they didn't have binoculars, but I'm sure they did this anyways, uh, were looking to see, hey, there's our courier. And they could tell by the way they were running whether the news was good or bad. You run 26 miles with bad news. And I'm thinking that the guys like this, and the guys on the on the wall are going oh this can't be good but those who have good news man they're running they're running they got good news how blessed and good it is for those who whose feet have good news do you got a spring in your step concerning jesus are you bringing good news to people? Are you trudging along? Yeah, Jesus is Lord. Come on, people. Put a spring in that step. We've got something good here. But they have not obeyed, all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So you've got to hear this good news. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For the voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel understand? Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah also said boldly, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I'm going to make this message known to who I want to make known to all the nations. And they heard it and they received it. But you, Israel, what are you so ticked about? I've had my hands open to you continually and you reject me and you ignore me and you ignore my statutes. So I will extend my grace to whom I will extend my grace. Do you see the argument? It's the crux of the argument. And so I've sent my son to go gather Jesus gave the same parable didn't he when he called those to the wedding feast and they would not come he said to all the servants now go to all the streets and everywhere and invite everybody in that's what he did and now chapter 11 to complete the explanation I ask then has God rejected his people Israel absolutely not He didn't reject Israel at all. You see, in his, same as Pharaoh in Egypt and Israel coming out of them, that grace that God showed to Israel hardened Pharaoh's heart. He showed grace to all the nations, and Israel hardened their heart. God didn't turn his back on Israel. Every promise to Israel is found in the Messiah. Israel's the root system of the salvation. Jesus said uh, uh, to the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. So all that you and I have comes from Jewish roots, comes from Israel. Every promise was through Abraham. And this is what he's going to get at. He didn't turn away from Israel. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the Scriptures say that of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I'm left all alone, and they seek my life too. And what was God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Israel can be saved. Anybody in Israel can come. You just have to receive Messiah, who came from Israel. And everything in Israel pointed to Him. But it is by grace. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You can't work for this thing. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. It is those who earnestly come to seek God by faith that can be saved. That's not turning Israel away. God is not closing the door on Israel. Anyone from Israel can be saved if they come to God by faith. But they are so entrapped... In works righteousness, that they are stuck in their mindset. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. You see, they're not sensitive to Yahweh. They're not sensitive to the Lord. They're sensitive to their religion. So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So in other words, he's saying this. Look at Gentiles. This opportunity has opened up to you from God. God had planned from the beginning of time to have a people. He conformed to the image of His Son. Now that this plan has been opened up to you, through Israel and through the Jews, don't do what they did. Don't you become prejudiced and harden your heart against Israel. Right? Because we can become proud. And so he's warning uh, the Gentiles now, or the nations, and he says, I'm going to speak to you. As much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. He has to awaken them by faith. So he's saying to Israel, we can make them jealous because we've received their Messiah. We can let them know that all the promises given to them We inherit too. Because we've received their Messiah who came for them and us. Make them jealous. And so he goes on and he says, now I'm speaking uh, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered in the first fruits is holy, then the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off of you, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Now, I give you this byproduct, Israel is the root system of salvation. For in the the seed was Abraham, the promised seed, right? And all the the covenant promises of the Old Testament is the entire root system of salvation. And as it grows up, it comes to fruition in Jesus. Jesus is the vine. But the branches that were to sprout out of it through Israel didn't sprout. So God grafted in the church but you are grafted in through Jesus. And he goes on to say this about being grafted. So look at if we were grafted in to this root system, how can we come against Israel? And this is a real problem in church history. Martin Luther at first was pro-Israel, but then he became very anti-Semitic. Many of Martin Luther's writings in the Reformation turned against Israel because at that time there was a real fight between Israel and the churches. And Luther actually encouraged the burning of synagogues and and coming against Jews. And out of that poor Reformation example in Lutheran Germany, it bore the seeds of what next? Arianism and Nazism and anti-Semitism And a lot of it comes through the church, which is an absolute shame, where the church didn't listen to what Paul said as a warning. Understand that the only reason you and I have this rich history of the Word of God is because of Israel and all the promises to Israel. Don't ever forget your Hebrew roots, that everything we have in Christ is because of what it came through Israel and a Jesus who is a Jewish Messiah. We were grafted into that. So if you ignore Israel and the promises of the Old Testament, you ignore the root system of your being. Now we've got a movement now called the Hebrew Roots Movement. We've got a a movement where uh, there are so many in the church wanting us to dress like Hebrews and sing like Hebrews and blow shofars and be like Jews that uh, we're all pro-Israel. Look, at Israel right now is still a secular nation. Just because they're Israel doesn't mean, oh, they're God's chosen, they do whatever they want. Read Hebrews nine, ten, and 11. Just because they're Jewish doesn't mean they're in the will of God. Though God will use the nation, right now it's a thorn in the side of all mankind because it's the stage he's building to bring completion to the world. But not everything they do is right. And your Gentiles come in through Judaism. We respect Judaism. We praise God for Judaism. We learn all the richness of it. But you don't have to be a Jew. And you don't have to pretend to be one either. Okay? Can I just say that? All right. 19. Then you will say, branches are broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, and but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. You must remain in the faith. I'm adding this. You you have to come by faith, not because you're a Christian, not because of your religion, but a relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into the olive tree? So a Jew can be saved, but he'll be grafted just like you were grafted because he's got to be grafted into Jesus. You with me? This is a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine tonight. You with me? Can you absorb this? Some of you are already starting to go, Arr. I'm almost done. But I'm, I'm, yeah, amen, you're getting it. I want it to be rich like that. Let's continue. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mysteries, brother. This mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, this mystery. What you have to understand is, Paul says that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. These mysteries, in the Bible when it talks about mysteries, it's saying things that were hidden that have now come to light. You have to imagine what came into greater perspective when Jesus came. Things that were mysteries are now revealed. In other words, the Trinity. The Old Testament only knew that there is one God. And there is only one God. They did not know that he was triune in nature. That was a mystery. We have that mystery understood. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. With the New Testament came the revelation of the mystery of the Godhead. Came the revelation that there is an Israel and that there is the church. That's a mystery that was hidden. That God is grafting all people through Jesus as a body. There's a mystery of heaven and hell. They didn't comprehend the fullness of heaven and hell. There's a, there was the mystery of the end times of when Messiah will return and gather all the nations. That, that was a mystery hidden. Now we, we have all this information. There's the mystery of those who are called by God, his elect. This was, these were all mysteries that in the Old Testament there was imagery, but they didn't have it. We have this full revelation Okay, so that's what he's talking about, and now what he's saying is, there's, here's the mystery between Israel and the church. There's been a stupor over Israel that they have struggled uh, to understand Messiah because they have been hardened partially until the fullness of the Gentiles. That means that there is a time to all the nations. We're in it, but it will wrap up. It's coming to an end. And in the way all and in this way Israel will be saved as it is written the deliverer will come from zion he will banish ungodliness from jacob and this will be my covenant with them and i will take away their sins as regards to the gospels they are enemies of god for your sake but as regards of election they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers god won't forsake what abraham, isaac and jacob did he's got a promise to them he'll keep the promise There may be many souls that are lost and don't come to Messiah in the meantime. But there is a time when Jesus will return, prophecy says, and all of Israel will see him and know he is Messiah. And they will be saved. Now that's to the nation at that time. But what about all the people before that? They come to salvation the same way anybody else does. Faith in Jesus. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you've received mercy because of their disobedience. So they may, so too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Now they can receive this mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. That's going back to the original statement. There are none righteous, no, not one. All have been called sinners, Jews and Gentiles, so that they all must come to one Savior. I I would add that there is no dual covenant. Some people believe that Christians are saved and Jews are saved just because they're Jews. That's a dual covenant. That, That discounts the cross of Jesus Christ. This verse right here tells you God consigned all. And that's what he said in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 17, Paul said, uh, God winked at sin before, but at this time calls all men to repentance. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given Him a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory